Calvary Church is located in beautiful Peterborough, Ontario, and is committed to impacting that community with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Each week, one of our preaching team draw powerful life application truths from the Bible. Check us out here or online at calvaryptbo.church. I want you to think about the time that you first got behind the wheel of a car. Now, I understand that some of us have to go back further than others to remember that this morning. But think about that time. Do you remember that feeling? Oh, it felt good, didn't it? I remember trying to figure out how much pressure to apply to the accelerator and the brake so that I wouldn't send my passenger teacher through the front windshield. Some of my friends got their license before I did because my parents only had a standard shift car. And to be honest, I was a little afraid to drive it. And that may or may not have had something to do with my father telling me not to burn out the clutch, which I may or may not have done. Before too long, though, and partially because my parents probably got tired of driving me around, I was forced to figure it out, and I eventually got my license too. And it was great. I was able to borrow my parents' car from time to time to go to youth group on Saturday night or to go to work throughout the week. But I tell you, it was nothing like the time when I got my very own first car. It was one thing to have to go to your parents and say, can I borrow the car? But when I had my own car, and it was nice too, it was a white Chevy Cavalier with two doors with a spoiler on the back. And it was a standard too. I could drive it wherever I want it, whenever I want it. And I thought I, I had it made. If you think that, you know, car payments and insurance payments and gas is having it made. But I think that you would agree that getting your first car was a pretty special moment versus the having all unlimited access versus limited access to your parents' car. Today, we're going to be beginning a series that we're calling Beyond the Song, and it takes a look at worship, what it was, what it is, and how it's lived out in our lives. And as, as we begin this series today, I want us to look at three areas. One, I want us to define what worship is. Then I want us to look at worship as it was in the Old Testament, before Jesus came on the scene. And then when we're done with that, we want to move into the New Testament and see just what kind of impact Jesus had and how he changed what worship looks like. So first of all, what is worship? If I were to ask you that question individually today, you would probably tell me stuff like, well, it's singing. It's music. It's that period of time before the preacher gets up where we're led by Ian or Josh or any of our other great leaders. David Peterson, in his book, Engaging with God, he, he says this about worship. In everyday speech, 
Christian worship is usually identified with certain public religious activities, such as going to church, or more particularly, singing hymns, saying prayers, listening to sermons, or participating in the Lord's Supper. But what if I told you today that worship goes beyond that? That it, can, it doesn't have to just include music. What if it was even more than that? What if I told you that worship goes beyond the songs that we sing on Sunday mornings? What if it could trickle out of Sunday mornings and into Mondays? What if worship wasn't contained or restricted to this building? That worship could move out of 1421 Lansdowne Street West and into your neighborhood, into your home. What would worship look like then? And that's what we're going to unpack over the next few weeks. But as we thumb through this book, as we go through the pages of the Bible from cover to cover, it reminds us that worship is a significant part of the journey of those who follow God. In the book of Exodus that we're going to look at a little more closely in a few minutes, but in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel was given a system of sacrifice which guided them in appropriate worship behavior. Throughout the Psalms, which is the longest book of the Bible, the psalmists, or the ones who wrote the Psalms, they demonstrate their praise and adoration of God through song. And then if we went to the back end of the Bible in Revelation, we are given glimpses of the saints and the angels in heaven who are bowing down and falling in worship of God. As we look at these people, as we consider their worship, be it through songs, through offerings, their posture. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about what was in it for them. Their worship was a response to God. In Exodus chapter 15, when Moses led the people of Israel across the Red Sea and on dry land and when they got to the other side the waters closed up and all of their enemies were drowned underneath the waters when they got to the other side they gathered and they worshiped in song it was the first corporate worship service but it wasn't organized because of a meeting that they had and thought hmm, what can we do we need to do something it wasn't like that. It was just simply their response to who God is, what he had just done, what he had just brought them through. They worshipped God. Uh, they worshipped in response to God. And they said, I will sing to the Lord. He is worthy of great honor. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Some definitions of worship include all that we are, reacting to all that he is. Biblical worship is the resp 
full life response, the head, heart, and even hands response to who God is and what he has done. Worship is loving God. It's obeying God. It's knowing God. It's honoring God. And I think you can boil it down to this. Worship is our response to God. And if worship is our response to God, to who he is, to what he's done, then wouldn't you agree that worship shouldn't be contained to just one means? Music? If we consider worship to be our full-on response, our head and heart response to God, then we can have confidence that worship goes beyond the song and permeates our everyday lives as we, as we respond to the God who is acceptable, accessible and fully available to be known. But you know what? It wasn't always that way. There wasn't always available access for private, personal, and direct worship. In your Bibles, we're going to turn to the book of Exodus. And Exodus is in the Old Testament. It's just the second book of the Bible, so really easy to find. So if you follow on your, in your Bibles or on your screens, on your phones, some might say, some might ask how these Old Testament accounts could possibly be relevant for us today. Why do we even bother to look at the Old Testament? But as you read the stories in the Old Testament of Israel's triumph and their trials, of the God who saw them through, these stories, they demonstrate for us the character of the same God that we still serve today. And so there's value in that. And here in Exodus 24, there's a moment in Israel's history that bridges a gap between the first part of the book and the second part of the book, between the victory at the Red Sea that we just talked about and the instructions for worship given at Mount Sinai. So like I said, there wasn't always an all-access pass. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Exodus 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 1 and 2, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. Catch that? You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. Moses, basically is what's saying here, Moses, you come, but everyone else, you stay back. Imagine. Instead of coming directly into the presence of the Lord, they were to go through Moses. 
Instead of a personal one-on-one relationship with their God, they were to watch from a distance. They could offer sacrifices. They could build build altars for burnt offerings. They could give shouts of joy. But the entirety of the Old Testament system for worshiping God was summarized right here. Worship at a distance. We might have trouble understanding this. If God loved the Israelites so much, if they were his chosen people, why wouldn't he draw them near? Why wouldn't he pull them close and cozy up with them like we would our children? Why would he command them to worship from afar while someone, one person, stood in their place? Well, it's simple, really. It's a one-word answer. The problem was sin. And although God had a plan from the very beginning, a plan for a time when there would be unlimited access to the Father, this wasn't that time. For now, they would worship at a distance. And so Exodus 24 continues, and Moses goes up on this mountain and into this cloud where he stays for 40 days and receives strict instructions for the building of a special place called the tabernacle. This place would serve as an unending reminder that these sinful people were indeed separated from their holy God. But it would also remind them that God was in the midst of them and that he cared enough to dwell amongst his people. And it's this same God that the nation of Israel worshipped at a distance this God that delivered them from the hands of their enemies, the same God who extended love and justice to this nation that he called his chosen people. This is the same God that we worship today, that we respond to today. The same God that made provision for his people so that he could be near. We flip over to the New Testament and to the book of Hebrews. And the author of the book of Hebrews does a really good job at summarizing what's going on here in Exodus. And you know, that's one of the things I like about Scripture. It doesn't leave us hanging. And despite hundreds of years of distance between situations... It speaks to the Old Testament condition and responds with an even better New Testament solution. And so let's take a peek at at Hebrews chapter 5, sorry, chapter 9. It's talking about worship in the earthly tabernacle. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stones, stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in details right now. I love that part. It goes on in that chapter to discuss the need for the shedding of blood and how the high priest was the only one who could enter the holy place. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they responded to God's offer for help. They offer for reconciliation, offer for forgiveness through worship and through sacrifices. But the worship was contained to one location only, and that was this tabernacle that we just read about, and later, the temple. And it was this place that Moses would go to. And when he did, he would go on his own. And as he was going, the people of Israel, they would see him going towards that place. And they would come out of their tents and they would stand there and they would watch him as he went. And they would stand at the edge of their tents and they would worship from a distance as Moses went on. That's what worship looked like for them. Access through another. Worshiping from afar. But remember I said there was a plan? And if we continue in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, but Christ, when Christ came. But when Christ came. You see, the problem of sin, the sin that kept the people of Israel from having unlimited and unhindered and personal access to God, the problem of sin, it was never without the promise of a solution. The enormity of the sin problem with all of its fallout was never without the promise of a plan to be perfectly executed in time and space, so allowing us access to God the Father himself, the freedom to worship God whenever, wherever, without a middleman, without messy multiple sacrifices. But when Christ came... Because when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he blew all of this up. And there's a woman in John chapter 4 that soon found out for herself, a Samaritan woman, who had an encounter on an ordinary day with this extraordinary Jesus. You see, we've defined worship as our response to God, our response to what he's done for us. We've understood worship a little bit better as we looked at the Old Testament system, which was to worship at a distance. But now, Jesus 
steps into time and space. He comes into our world and things change. But how? John chapter 4. This is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. We're going to pick it up in 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. This account is the very demonstration of unhindered access. You see, Jews and Samaritans, they weren't supposed to mix. But cultural faux pas aside, Jesus engages this woman in conversation this day. She was a mess, trying to fly under the radar because of her lifestyle choices. But instead of going unnoticed, she is noticed this day. Instead of being rejected, she is accepted. And instead of judgment, she gets hope. Isn't that just like Jesus? And she asks this question of Jesus. And sometimes I, I kind of wonder if it was she was trying to change the subject from what they were talking about before. Or if it was really this burning question on her. And she says, hey, I see you're a prophet. Your people say, worship there. Our people say, worship here. What is it? She asks for clarity here because in her mind, worship is contained to a singular place. And Jesus, not getting bogged down in the debate, goes right to the heart of the matter. There's a time coming. In fact, it's already here, he says. When true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And just like that, he blows all of that up. The Old Testament system of worship. And he shifts the focus. It's not about one solitary location anymore. It's not about the where. It's about the who. And if you've come into this place to worship this morning, this is great. The scripture tells us not to give up meeting together. So we will keep doing this. We will keep coming corporately and worshiping together. But if you think that when you leave these doors that you have, you have completed your worship time for the week and you can't bring worship into your Mondays and into your Tuesdays, into your home, into your office at, while you're shopping while you're at practices if you think that worship is contained to this space 
only, then we need to revisit this moment that Jesus is having with this Samaritan woman because he's blowing that idea out of the water. It's not about the where anymore, people. It is about the who. It's more about the heart for God than it is about the location from which we approach him. The old covenant might have been about worship at a distance. But praise the Lord, the new covenant that Jesus ushered in is all about drawing near to God in worship. This worship is not tied to a holy place anymore, but impacted by a holy person. Three things I want us to pull out of John chapter 4 before we finish up this morning. Jesus says to the woman, a time is coming and it has come that when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. First, God is seeking true worshipers. Those who worship him in truth with sincerity of heart, not out of legalistic obligation. Second, those who worship in spirit and truth respond to God as they get to know him, as they get to know about who he is as we read about him in scripture as we see him at work in our lives as we interact with him through prayer this is how we get to know this god that we serve and how we then respond to him in truth and god is spirit he isn't confined to this building you better believe he's in the midst of us when we're here, gathered together, but he isn't confined to this. He isn't contained by time and space. Our access to him is unlimited. It is not about the location anymore. And finally, Jesus says that worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship isn't optional. But you know what? As you get to know him, through reading the word and spending time with him in prayer, seeing him interact and, and move in your life and in the lives of those around you, as you get to know him, worship becomes this natural outflow from our heart, our natural response to God. I'm going to ask the team to come back. Worship goes beyond the song, but sometimes the songs help us focus on the worship, don't, don't they? So in no way am I saying that worship is not a good thing. <laughs> Music is not a good thing. It is. But remember that first car you had, right? Let's go back to that for a second. It was so much better 
to be able to grab your keys and go, not having to seek permission, was so much better to have unlimited access. Folks, Jesus gives us unlimited access to the Father. We don't have to worship at a distance anymore. We can draw near to God. And we don't have to draw near to him only when we're here on Sunday mornings. We can do it in our cars. We can do it in our homes, in the morning before everybody gets up, or with our families. We can do it when we're on vacation. We can do it when we're at practices, when we're shopping. We can continually be drawn near to God. We don't have to limit our time of worship to our Sunday mornings. So what does that look like? We can get to know God by making space for him in our days. Reading his word, praying, spending time with him, and maybe even joining a life group so that there's an accountability piece there too. And maybe if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, and this is all just foreign to you, I want you to know that Jesus is extending an invitation to you directly today. That you can come and be a part of this too. And we'd be happy to talk with you about that, or maybe the person you came with can do that too. Folks, let's not contain worship to this building. Let's take it into our Mondays and Tuesdays as well and the rest of our week too. Father, thank you for the plan that was fully executed, perfectly executed, allowing us to worship up close, not worshiping at a distance anymore. Thank you for that provision And now I ask that you would challenge us today to bring this worship into our Mondays and Tuesdays, that it would be a natural response to who you are as we learn about you through scriptures and spend time with you in prayer, as we talk about you with our life group and with other groups and other people, our friends. I pray that you would call us to worship you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.